Our scripture text from this, uh, this morning is from Luke 8, 40 through 46. I invite you to turn there now. Let us pray together. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, and learn and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear these words from uh, from uh, from the Scriptures in Luke 8, 40 uh, 40 through 56. Now, when Jesus, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians... She could not be healed by anyone, since she came, up, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, She came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble this teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him, at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, saying, he called and said, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And, something, uh, and her parents were amazed, and he, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. My central idea for this, for this text is since both the influential and the outcast must bow at Jesus' feet, he knows and cares for them both. I'll do this through three points, the insider, the outcast, and the final point, Jesus knows and cares. We as humans have a really strong tendency uh, to gravitate towards others who are like us. Your job, your family, your hobbies, your interests all cause you to get along with, with uh, some people and to not really understand others who don't share your, similar, your interests. In our tendency to gravitate towards some and away from others, we can fall into the trap of elevating the kind of people we're like to a more special status than those that we don't understand. And in the ugly, twisted nature of our sin that pervades our fallen nature, we can then read this hermeneutic into our own reading of Scripture. 
Competing voices in church cry out from different corners about who the church should be targeting. One group cries out, we must have influence in the culture. We need influential people speaking on our behalf in the public square. Another group cries out that the care of the poor should be the central focus of the church. They cry, Jesus came to save the poor and the needy. And both groups can make many arguments for why they believe that they are working from the correct perspective. But could it be that these perspectives are both based in a false uh, difference between classes of people that misses the point of the gospel narratives? This text is a perfect example of understanding what the author is doing is in some ways just as important as what the author is saying. Many times, we moderns can read our Bibles in a very compartmentalized way. We see the verse numbers, we see the chapter headings, we see the section differences, and we can think that the formatting then means that there, these, these are just collected stories of difference that the gospel writers went around and then compiled them all randomly together and then presented the gospels in the way that we see them. Instead, we need to read our Bibles and understand that the gospel writers and the writers of Scripture had a purpose for their structure and why they put stories together in certain places. They're not random, but they had a purpose to their organization. The gospel writer Luke clearly shows that he's up to something in the retelling of Jesus' life, and we see this in chapter 8. Although the gospel writer Mark also tells of this encounter, and so does Matthew, Luke adds some interesting details that show a parallel between this noble one and this unclean one. My first point is this, the insider. Jesus cares care for the influential in society, not because of their status, but because of their humble submission before him. Let's look at verses 40 through 42 again. When, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, and she, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Just moments after Jesus steps off the boat, steps off the boat after healing the demoniac of the Gerasenes, he's greeted by a distressed father. And rightfully so, his daughter of 12 years, his little girl, is at the point of death and in absolute desperation. No doubt, after trying to get medical help, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and hope that he will come with him. And no parent should be surprised by this. But the position of the daughter, and in some ways, is less important as the position of the father. He is the ruler of the synagogue, the hub of the religious and social life in the Jewish community. This is no ordinary father. Luke and Mark both record his position and his name. Even the healed woman and the daughter in this passage are not named. This is an important person in the eyes of the gospel writers. And I imagine that the disciples were ecstatic by this development. Look, we've got an influential guy. Maybe if we can get him on our team, others will follow him. After watching the rejection of the Pharisees and Sadducees, we can only imagine that the disciples would have viewed Jairus as a priority because of his status in the community. Yet, just in Jairus' act of falling at Jesus' feet and recognizing Jesus' power to heal, he has forfeited his status and influence among the hardliners of his community. I often hear the phrase, well, Jesus only hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And while it's true, and it is a glorious truth that Christ came and was with those who the society rejected, he also dined, worshipped, and spoke 
with the religious elites of the Jewish society. Where is he when the woman of the city comes and anoints his feet? He's eating and talking with a bunch of Pharisees at dinner. Why is it that Jesus has so much dialogue with the Pharisees and scribes? Is he seeking them out? Is he trying to get along with them? Probably not. They're following him around. He probably knew them well. He knew their names, and he probably knew their kids' names. And I could go on with examples, yet Jesus dealt with them differently. See the difference between Nicodemus and Jairus. Nicodemus, another influential ruler in the Jewish society, comes to Jesus in secret, in the middle of the, in a, a secret in the middle of the night, asking him many questions, to which Jesus leaves Nicodemus perplexed with the truth of salvation. But Jairus, on the other hand, comes to Jesus in broad daylight before all the people of his community, falling at Jesus' feet with no questions, asking for his help. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Not just the poor and the outcast, but the rulers and influential. Friends, our Lord's ministry was not just focused on those who were outwardly needy, but those who were inwardly needy. We must always be aware that it is not what a person brings as an offering to our church that is of the utmost importance. But instead, the priority should be on their submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, I think... as a Think of those upstanding men in your churches. You know their names and their faces. I ask you, are they revered and respected for their godliness and their love for Christ and his church? Or are they respected because they're shrewd businessmen? Are they influential players in a large uh, institution? We in the church are always in danger of elevating status over a worldly status over godliness. Let us be thankful for the gifts and status that we have, that the Lord has given us here on earth. Let us not forget where that blessing comes from. Jesus does not need us as if there was something lacking in himself. But instead, he has chosen for himself a people to redeem, not because of themselves, but despite of themselves. My first point, Jesus care for, cares for the influential in society, not because of their status, but because of their humble submission before him. My second point, the outcast. Jesus' power and mercy must drive all of us to bow before him. Let's look at verse, starting uh, the second part of verse 42. Uh, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her money on living, uh, living on physicians, she could not be healed by anybody. She, uh, she came up behind him and touched, uh, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. This narrative could have been complete with a humble submission of, a very, of, of one who is very, viewed as very important. But in this providential interruption, a plot twist in the movement of the narrative. There's a plot twist in the movement of the narrative. In the midst of the excitement and the people, another desperate character lurks in the shadows. She shouldn't be here. She is unhelpable. She is ceremonially unclean and an outcast. But this is no accidental bump in the crowd. Interrupting the narrative of this text is a seemingly polar opposite character to Jairus. She leaps to the forefront. This character is not influential, and in fact, she's an outcast. 
And not only that, but considered by the Mosaic law to be ceremonially unclean. Anyone coming in contact with her would be considered unclean also. She has lost all her money to treatments and now lurks in the shadows, afraid to even face Jesus. She comes up behind him, and in the midst of a dense crowd, she risks the ceremonially uncleanliness of all around her, showing her desperation, just to touch a piece of his clothing. Like someone dying, in de- dying of dehydration in the desert, they don't thirst for large amounts of water, but instead gasp for just a drop. And it works. What no money could buy, what no medical treatment could do, the bleeding stops. Skipping ahead a bit, when she realizes she cannot hide, she comes trembling and falls at the feet of Jesus. Let's pause here, friends. Here's where the author is doing something that we tend to miss in our effort to run towards those words, your faith has made you well. Jairus and this woman may be opposites in terms of their status, but they are parallel in their position. Notice both come to Jesus in desperation. Having exhausted all their resources, Luke even records the parallel number of 12 years for both actors. And more, most importantly, both fall at the feet of Jesus. Although they are on opposite sides of the social ladder, Luke reveals that through this parallelism, that this encounter is no accident. And just as this is not a random bump in the, a bump in the crowd, on a crowded street, this is no accident in the plan of God. For 12 years, the Lord has been preparing Jairus and this woman for this moment. And at the culmination of both of their lives, they are both here at the feet of Jesus. Another common phrase is death is the great equalizer. And the thinking goes that since we all must die, we all equally return to the dust. And there's a lot of truth in this, but just visit a graveyard and see the difference between the gravestones of the rich and the unmarked mass burial of the pauper's grave. Even in death, the rich and influential go on in stone and legacy. But I would posit to you that submission to Christ is the real and true equalizer. No one can come before Christ radiant in their own status. Every character who properly encounters the second person of the Trinity must fall at his feet in reverence and submission. Whether it be the great commander Joshua, or this unclean woman, or the leading Pharisee Saul, or the great and the last of the apostles John, all, no matter their status, must be nothing at his feet. And friends, this is the gospel. You and I must be born again. To fall at the feet of Jesus is to recognize ourselves as sinners and himself as king of kings. It is a posture of repentance for our rebellion and unbelief, but it is also a posture of faith. By falling at his feet, we, give up, we are giving up ourselves. We give ourselves over to his care. Will he judge us and cast us off? Or will he pardon and heal us? In that moment, we understand that we were never our own, but we always have, have always belonged, body and soul, to him. But there is more here. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus' healing of the flow of blood is also a symbol pointing on to something greater than just physical healing. 
Christ gives new life by faith when all seems hopeless. Although in faith we fall at Jesus' feet, he doesn't leave us there. But raises us, raises us uh, up his, of his people in redemption. We have a word for this. Resurrection. Just like this woman and later in the past and later in the passage, the daughter, we are left dead in our sin, hopeless. But Christ gives new life to broken sinners. Resurrection life is what he ultimately brings to all those who would believe. And although this and all and through this resurrection, like Jesus, he brings believers healing from sin. My second point. The outcast, Jesus' power and mercy must drive all of us to bow before him. My final point, Jesus knows and cares. There is no maverick grace in Christ. Look at verses 44 through 40. uh, Let's look at 46. But Jesus said, someone touched me. And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds crowds around you and press in on you. Imagine the scene. Jesus is moving towards moving towards Jairus' home with his followers in tow. No doubt, very excited about the perspective of getting an inroad with the influential in society. And then Jesus stops and asks what seems to his followers to be, and most particularly Peter, a ridiculous question: "Who touched me?" Come on, Jesus. It's no big deal. Are you kidding me? Look at all the people. We've got to get there quick. So don't miss our, let's not miss our golden opportunity. A murmur from the back might have even been, maybe Jesus' mother and brothers, mother and brothers were right. He is out of his mind. To those around him who did not understand his true nature, to claim such knowledge as verse 46 is shocking. Yet, to the, on this side of the cross, we know this is wholly consistent with Christ's nature as the God-man. He is not too distracted like those around him with the task at hand of healing Jairus' daughter. Though he walked among people, he was upholding the entire cosmos. A theologian once said, in relation to God's sovereignty, God controls every molecule in the universe. He is God. There are no maverick cells outside of his control. And just as there is no maverick molecules in the universe, there is no maverick grace. Jesus knows every ounce of it, where it goes, when it goes, and to who it goes. Even in the most packed moments on earth, Jesus felt when the power had gone out of him. I personally can barely focus in a coffee shop when it's getting too loud. Yet our Lord knew the difference in touch between the excited jam of a crowd and the tap of a repentant, hurting outcast. He has always been in control, and he will always be in control. In contrast to the previous point, we are not left beggars before Christ. We as believers are never left there. He knows and cares for us. He knows and cares for you. Yes, we all must fall as desperate sinners before at his feet for mercy, but he doesn't look down on those who are his with disdain. Just like this woman who trembled in fear, we look up to a savior of the world and are not met with a frown, but with a savior who looks on us with compassion and mercy.
It's not in the text, but I cannot help but believe that this woman looked up from the ground to the loving smile of a good Savior. In my final illustration, I want to draw your attention to the words of our Heidelberg Catechism. In speaking of the Lord's Supper, this idea is beautifully drawn out in question 76. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. This is for us, brothers and sisters. The Lord knows you and I beyond our comprehension. There is not a speck of grace or care that has flowed out from him that he does not know and send himself. This, his kind words to this woman are daughter. He calls us his children. Dwell on this, friends. When Christ sends out his grace, he comes with it. He does not stand far off, but instead, like the proverb speaks, closer than a brother. I believe this is something that we miss so much in our understanding of prayer and of the Christian life. Christ does not sit aloft in heaven dispassionately doling out grace like a lunch lady dumping an answered prayer on, our, on a tray and then dismissively saying next. <laughs> no, 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 no. Jesus does not deal with his people as if they are a minor inconvenience or a box to be checked off. Instead, as believers, we have a deep and unbreakable union with Christ himself. So deep that he sends his very own spirit to dwell in every single redeemed one. You are not a burden to the Lord Jesus, but a beloved and cared for child of the King. May we know this about ourselves and treat our brothers and sisters in the same way. My final point, Jesus knows and cares. There is no maverick grace in Christ. But that's not the end of the story. And if you keep reading, though the subject for this is another sermon, Jesus has not forgotten his original task. He will demonstrate this power in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in so doing, he confirms his words to this woman in the crowd. He is, in fact, the Messianic king who has come to bring the dead to life. Friends, this is our Savior. This is our king. We have been given the call to proclaim to, to call, proclaim, let us not prioritize the status of people, but let us prioritize the Savior who created them and came for their salvation. Let us pray. Our merciful God, who is pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, grant us all grace that we may be hearers of your word, but doers also. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do, as you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's stand and sing uh, in light of these truths. Hymn 446, Be Thou My Vision. <laughs>